Hello, and welcome to the SAMOPS Specialty Spotlight Podcast. This podcast was created to help inform military medical students about experiences and opportunities in military medicine. We aim to interview physicians either currently in or retired from the military, from all branches of service and various specialties. Today, we are fortunate to have Dr. Lofsgarden with us. Dr. Lofsgarden is an Army physical medicine and rehabilitation physician that has graciously agreed to speak with me all about the specialty and serving in the Army as a physician and on short notice. She has been a major positive influence and integral member of SAMOPS, RAMOPS, and AMOPS. She did her residency at Walter Reed and currently practices at Brook Army Medical Center at the Center for the Intrepid. PMNR from the recent Army GME update suggests this has become a highly sought after specialty for Army medical students, and I'm sure our listeners will be interested in hearing what she has to say. With that, we'll jump right in. Welcome, ma'am. Hi, thanks for having me today. I'm happy to be here and to be in the morning. I'm drinking actually pumpkin pecan coffee. So I'm, I'm feeling pretty happy. Uh, All in Texas. Right? <laughs> I mean, it's been cooling down a little bit here in Texas here recently, right? So yeah, it, it dropped a whole 10 degrees. It's it's 90 degrees rather than 100 degrees. Right. Part of that is probably uh, hurricane or not hurricane yet. Tropical storm Nicholas coming in. Yeah. yeah, I'll take it where I am anyway. <laughs> sure. So uh, normally we kick it off with the same uh, general question just to kind of get an idea of who you are, what you do and stuff like that. So a little brief background on yourself. Where are you from? Uh, if you want to speak about your family, you absolutely don't have to. But if you want to, you can totally do that. Uh, what medical school you went to, you can give us a little more details about residency training and kind of go from there. Yeah, sure. Uh, so I um, went to Des Moines University in Des Moines, Iowa and graduated 2015. Uh, that's where I met my husband who is a civilian um, internal medicine physician. Uh, so he, that's kind of one of the fun things that we connect with people about is because he did civilian residency while I was doing my army residency. And during the match, he had to adjust his plans a little and he was awesome about it. So if anybody ever wants to talk to me or reach out to me about that. That was a fun process um, with lots of flowcharts about what could happen. Um, and so uh, he and I um, were in, on the East Coast for four years while I was at Walter Reed. Um, the physical medicine and rehab um, residency starts with a transitional year and then you do three years of your specialty specific or categorical training. So transitional year was done through Walter Reed. Um, it's not a requirement for people that are up for that are playing. You don't have to do it at Walter Reed, but that is the three continuous spots that has historically been three. It's it's fluctuated between being two to three in the last five years or so. So are you saying that you for PMNR you have to do a transitional year and then you apply to the PMNR residency or the transitional year is built into the residency when you apply for the match? There are actually two pathways. So you can do there's a continuous training pathway, which is what I was fortunate enough to match into. So at the year I applied, there were three spots for um, you did your transitional year at Walter Reed. And then you just continued on for PGY two, three, four. And then there's another pathway where if you are doing a transitional year somewhere else or another in, we've had people who've done other residencies and then decided it wasn't for them and then reapplied. Or we had folks who did a transitional year somewhere else and then did some GMO time and then applied. 
those are all different ways that they that they can be built into the residency. Um, so it and again, those spots, those PGY2, not what we call non-categorical spots, all have been um, from folks that had those backgrounds. And then those fluctuate between one to two slots a year, depending on needs of the Army and needs of the Navy recently. The Air Force hasn't trained anyone in many, many years. Um, so that's an interesting fact. So when, if anybody listening to this is uh, thinking about PM&R and you're considering the branch you want to join, Air Force is probably not the best option if you want to do active duty physical medicine rehabilitation. Navy, it's a little bit harder. They've been training a few more recently. By few more, I mean one to two over the last five to six years. So it's a little harder. Oh, I couldn't hear you. You. How many of the army taking right now? This for this cycle, they have three spots for the transitional year continuous training into PGY two, PGY three, PGY four. Yeah, I believe they only have one for this cycle. I may be wrong on this, but it. I think it's just one for army, and then there may be a Navy spot depending on what the applicant pool looks like. And if they started the process early enough, I'm not as close to that process anymore. Uh, not being in residency or being part of this, um, the evaluation process with the, with the program. So I can't speak totally to that right now, but historically it's been one to two. So, but this cycle we were approved for three, which is three um, continuous training contracts, which is awesome. Okay. Well, we did get a little off track just because I started asking sorry. questions too early. So uh, you, you went to residency at Walter Reed and your, your husband was internal medicine. You guys were on that, uh, on the East coast. Uh, what else can you tell me about yourself before we dig the rest into PM&R? <laughs> so, uh, and I'm originally from Wisconsin and go pack go. And I am currently stationed at Brook Army Medical Center and I'm the service chief for physical medicine and rehabilitation. Uh, we have currently three general PM&R doctors working at BMC. Um, and then the Center for the Intrepid is a, uh, one of the Army's advanced rehabilitation centers. The other one is Walter Reed, and then the Navy has one at San Diego. So those are our three advanced rehab centers within the military. And let's see, what else can I tell you about myself? We have a two-year-old, and we're expecting another one this fall, which is very exciting. And we have a dog named Phoebe, and this is our first duty station after residency and I've been here for two years now. So that's, that's kind of where I am. I'm early career with more responsibility than some of my civilian friends, um, which was a surprising thing about coming into practice out of directly out of residency. So that's something that I think is important to recognize that you may have more responsibility than even being chief resident <laughs> when you get done with residency. So I think that probably covers most of it um, at so this point. Yeah, I would say that's actually a good segue for me, because uh, since this is your uh, first duty station out of residency, but you got to experience Walter Reed and you are now working at BAMC, uh, any comparing and contrasting of the two places? How did you how do you feel working at BAMC pros and cons? And 
I could comment all day on San Antonio because I think San Antonio is amazing. Personally, uh, not everybody feels that way. So what's your personal take on that? Well, uh, I am, I think I like them both for different reasons. I was frustrated with the big city commute of uh, Walter Reed. A lot of our rotations were actually outside of the actual Walter Reed campus. Oh, wow. On post uh, because we have to do a lot of inpatient rehabilitation. So we went to the major rehab centers in the area. So we did children, you know, Children's National, National Rehab Hospital. The um, VA was part of my internship. So we did a lot of internal medicine there. We did internal medicine at in our TY at uh, Walter Reed as well, but we also did VA rotations. And then we had... Uh, there's a private rehabilitation hospital that we rotated at called Inova. It's one of the major hospital systems uh, for our stroke and general and cancer rehab uh, that we had to do for inpatient. So it was a lot of driving. I didn't like a lot of driving. I am from the Midwest where a commute, if it's longer than 20 minutes, it's very frustrating. Then I moved to San Antonio. A commute is about 30 minutes because of where we chose to live because my husband works at a different hospital. So that's probably my biggest pet peeve about any of this is living in a bigger city. I know that's not a problem at smaller MTS, but you don't get the experience of having a larger hospital system. Mm -hmm. And that I do think is really valuable and really exciting. So at Walter Reed, uh, we had had a larger PM&R department. And so, and a lot more established just because that's where our training is. And so they've had a longer and more consistent presence uh, over the past several years. So like the referral base is bigger. Um, You do only see beneficiaries at Walter Reed for the most part. There are very few secretary of defense designees, which is a civilian who's gotten special permission to get care at a military treatment facility. And so you don't have very many of those patients. Everyone is either a family member or active duty service member, retiree, or some other way of being a a beneficiary to the DOD. So that's a little different at Walter Reed versus here at BMC. A lot of, I'd say it's probably about 20% of my clinical time is actually doing spinal cord injury and inpatient consults on the burn unit here, as well as on the trauma ICU and the general floor. And so those patients actually have skewed more on the side of being civilian traumas, just because of how the BMC system is set up. They have a memorandum of understanding with the city and with COVID, we've been the trauma divert so we see a lot more of that polytrauma and um, spinal, spinal cord injury specifically. We also have a brain injury service here that is its own um, separate service that's run by another physiatrist who's a civilian at BMC, which is actually very nice to have that concentrated team. And then we work closely with them when we have shared patients who also have multiple orthopedic trauma or neurologic trauma based on whatever the injury is. So that's been really fun to see how we can actually collaborate and make things better for these patients and have them see all the right specialists that they need. Uh, so that's, that's one unique thing about BMC versus uh, the Naval Hospital over in Bethesda is that, well, the old Naval Hospital, I guess it's now Stry Service, but still think of it as Naval, Navy Hospital. Um, the, um, the other thing that I think is 
interesting about BMC is that because it's so much larger and has so many more traumas, we see a lot more acute injury, but we don't see a lot from theater. Whereas we would see a lot coming directly from launch stool at Walter Reed uh, on our PM&R service. And so we would, they would come to the, they would come from launch stool and then come to Walter Reed. They'd be assessed by the trauma team and then they would end up on the PM&R service or we would be consulted on them and see them uh, at Walter Reed. So that's a little different. We, we get them either a little later in the process or they've come from the other side, mostly like the Pacific actually has been some of the folks that we've seen more so than from the Middle East um, theater location. So it's been a little bit of a different um, combat injured and training injury population here too, as far as the active duty side. And then it's the patients kind of get a choice to where they want to do their rehab. So if they have family in the Texas area, uh, a lot of times they will get a transfer after their initial year in their recovery process. So we see them more on the outpatient side for the active duty piece. So I think those, those are probably the biggest difference is that this is a level one trauma center here versus Walter Reed um, doesn't see as many civilian traumas and you don't um, have all the complexity that's involved with that. Okay. So actually I'm going to jump right in there because I think this is a good opportunity. We talked uh, right before we started this interview is that you know, a lot of people, myself included, before doing a little homework on the specialty is that PM&R was just like physical therapy, but for physicians. Um, when you talk about, you know, your service and being at BAMC and seeing all these traumas and stuff like that, what what is your spiel on when you tell a medical student what PM&R actually is? And then maybe give us kind of a glimpse into what your day-to-day -day life at BAMC looks like and the things that you do. Sure. So my short spiel is Physical medicine rehabilitation is muscles, bones, and nerves, non-operative management. So if it affects any of those systems, we can find a way to help make that more functional. Um, so if there's an, in, it's life after injury, life after recovery. Um, so the three main tenets that you do when you do inpatient rehabilitation are traumatic brain injury, spinal cord injury and stroke. So those are all um, the main areas that you are gonna see on an inpatient rehab unit. You also will see orthopedic trauma because if you think about how people get TBIs and if you think about how people get spinal cord injuries, they generally don't come as an isolated incident. Uh, strokes, of course, you have multiple ways that people have, um, a, you can have anoxic brain injury. You can have an actual hemorrhagic injury. Those all manifest differently. And we, in the active duty side, we truthfully don't see as much of that aspect of it, but we definitely see the TBIs and the spinal cord injuries. Mm -hmm. So that's the inpatient side. And then there's something called polytrauma, which technically is multiple large bone traumas or a spinal cord injury with a brain injury or other neurologic injury. So uh, basically if it's more than one limb, that got busted, we help manage everything after they've had their surgery and we help manage things like neurogenic bowel and bladder, uh, skin protection, prevention of wounds. Uh, we get some training in wound care as well and both in both the hospital setting as well as in the um, outpatient setting. And then there's the musculoskeletal care. 
portion. So um, outpatient care, where you mentioned um, physical therapy. So the first physical therapists were actually nurses that were trained by the first person who coined the term physiatrist, which is the, one of the ways you can say it. Some people say physiatrist, some people say physiatrist. It depends on what part of the country <laughs> you're from. And so they were actually nurses that were trained to do the physiotherapy and then it became its own profession as, as we know it today. But that was actually the first thing on polio wards and surgical recovery wards. And so it was one of the places. Um, and then, so that's where the confusion, the name comes from, physical medicine. And then there was the rehabilitation side, which was uh, kind of where we had this, like in the 1930s, people would go to a solarium and they just lay there. And then people realized you have to get up and do stuff to mm -hmm. actually go back to like, living a life after mm -hmm. you're sick. So that was also deterrent. That was also something that was discovered and implemented. And so there were two different factions that came up with that. So it's a common misconception that we are the same as physical therapy. We are not. So <laughs> the two separate disciplines, but we work very, very closely with physical therapists um, and occupational therapists, speech language, pat language pathologists and um, rehabilitation nurses. There's, there's a whole team involved, rehab psychologists. Uh, there's, in order to do good rehab care, you have to have a whole team. And so we do a lot of orthopedic work and musculoskeletal care. So a lot of my practice is seeing people who have an injury from training, overuse injuries. Maybe they had some, they're having some pain after they'd had surgery a couple of years ago, and then they've had some changes. So I'll see that. Um, I do a lot of joint injections. We do a lot of platelet-rich plasma regenerative medicine techniques in our clinic. And uh, the other piece we do is a lot of electrodiagnostic evaluation, which is not many people have actually heard about that one, but so physical medicine and rehabilitation and neurology can do electrodiagnostics. So it's an, basically a test of the peripheral nerve, nervous system and the muscles that they connect to. And it can diagnose things like radiculopathy, hereditary neuropathy, um, peripheral neuropathy, and neuromuscular disorders, as well as things like muscular dystrophy, it can give us some idea of those things. So it's a wide, wide range of, of conditions that it can help diagnose. A lot of what I do is helping with surgical planning after injury uh, for the surgeon. So if somebody has had like extensive burn injuries, uh, recently we did a, a study just to see what was preserved in the forearm and then what was, um, what was damaged and what can the surgeon use for a nerve or, or a tendon transfer. So that those are the types of questions that we work closely with the surgeons in the military to actually get somebody back function after a really catastrophic injury um, because they can do so many interesting things with flaps, and, with flaps and with different grafts and tendon transfers. So we try to be as available and in, in helpful with that, um, especially here at the center, because we have so many of these complex injured patients here. So that's one of the really fun parts of this job. Um, and then we do a lot of diagnostic ultrasound to help for musculoskeletal, not for, not for like the fast exam. I have no idea how to do a fast exam. Uh, that's <laughs> I think what everybody thinks of when they hear diagnostic ultrasound in the um, point of care ultrasound setting. A lot more of what I do is knees and shoulders, um, hip 
HIP evaluations, uh, mm-hmm. and then in um, the amputee population, which is also a large chunk of what I do here at the Center for the Intrepid, is um, like taking a look and seeing if there's a, an obvious pain generator, seeing if we can find an aroma, seeing if there's any obvious scarring that could be pulling or, and if there's anything we can intervene on. So that's another fun part of our job. Um, at Walter Reed and here and at San Diego, they have amputation rehabilitation centers. And so we basically take folks who have lost a limb, either upper or lower, sometimes more than one, and we have prosthetists here that we work with, orthotists that we work with, that help get these folks what they need to either return to duty or to um, get to a point where they're functional and they can you know, get back to real life. We do see some civilians on a space available basis because of BAMC's uh, memorandum of understanding with the city and, and how that's set up. So we see them for a short period of time um, one of the limitations is they have to be able to get their own prosthetics, but we can offer them the therapy and we can offer them the pain management and medications for that kind of kind of um, post-op complication things. So we work pretty closely with the surgeon on that as well. And I'm trying to think if there's other fun things we do because there it feels like there's a lot. Um, another thing you get trained on is uh, wheelchair and seating systems and medical equipment. So um, all of those pieces that if somebody is coming in, for example, into a multidisciplinary clinic for neuromuscular um, dysfunction. So in um, residency, we did like a muscular dystrophy clinic at the children's hospital. So one of the aspects we would do is make sure that that patient had all the appropriate equipment to start to develop at the level of their peers within whatever their limitations are. So making sure their seating system fits appropriately, checking to make sure they have the appropriate services that their family can help care for them. If there's any newer exciting treatments, making sure that that's communicated with the family, if there are research trials going on. Um, For kids with cerebral palsy, we do spasticity management. Um, so we also learn how to do that, spasticity management, Botox injections. We learn how to do baclofen pumps. Um, but unfortunately, a lot of places that, that requires a lot of infrastructure for safety reasons. So um, we haven't actually started to do that as a management technique outside of residency training at these major centers. But that is something that him and our doctors do on the outside uh, in the civilian world, as well as managing baclofen pumps. Uh, for spasticity medicines and um, th- there's just so many things I could talk yeah. about the special I could talk about our fellowships that we have I mean there's been <laughs> a lot that we do but that's that is just general that is without specializing okay. those are things that you can do in PMNR without going into a fellowship of any kind okay. which is super fun so let's say you sold me on Army PMNR at this point, right? Uh, talk to me about the process. What does the match look like? How does somebody make themselves competitive for a PMNR residency? What 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 kind of letters should they be getting? What rotations can they do to strengthen their skills in that area? And uh, what what do um, what do the senior residents and program director uh, look for, or what do you think they look for in a strong person rotating for an audition there? Sure. So I can't speak for the program, but what I can say is from, uh, when I was, so keeping in mind, I was 
chief resident in the we had to split chief duty so you but you kind of are you're all shared chiefs for your fourth year and then you have your months where you're in charge during that time um and i happened to be during my fourth year i happened to be the chief during the cycle that i was um that i was chief for the cycle where everybody was doing their audition rotations okay so um i can speak to what we looked for and what we were when the uh, program director came to us and said, what do you think? Uh, they do, they do take the residents comments seriously. Um, and they do take the staff's comments and um, opinions of the applicants seriously. So my best advice is that you absolutely need to do, if at all possible, a rotation at Walter Reed during your ADT time. Um, this is the FaceTime is important. We need to know how well you work as a team because it is a very small program, mm -hmm. max of five residents. And sometimes it's less than that. Um, it's been as low as two. Uh, so wow. in, yeah, so it, it fluctuates every, so keeping that in mind too, it fluctuates every year and it has fluctuated every year for the last four years. And so the, and that's why it looks so competitive on the GME survey uh, because you, if you have only three slots for those, for those positions and you have five applicants, that's, that's what ends up happening with the numbers. And it's kind of rough for those, those two that there just aren't spots for, even it if they're intimidating stuck. for a student. Absolutely. But I would say apply anyway, like mm -hmm. just apply anyway. <laughs> so you have to, you obviously have to do as well as you, all of the normal things, do as well as you can on all of your evaluations in medical school, do as well as you can on all your tests, all your boards. Uh, that is factored in. You do get, uh, as like anything with the military, there is a point system. And so doing a research activity is a point, mm -hmm. but whether you have 17 publications or whether you have one poster, kind of just all counts as the same thing. So okay. although it's good to have research experience and if you have an interest in research, there's absolutely opportunities for that and you are required to do research activity in residency. If you didn't have the opportunity to be part of a randomized controlled trial, large multi-center study or something, that's okay too. Mm -hmm. um, the main thing is that you understand the research process and that you are able and willing to learn. And, and I think the biggest thing beyond scores, because everybody just kind of gets put in, you know, they'll, they'll run like any other program, they will run the, run the numbers like they have to for some sort of ranking system. And then it's input. Like, is this somebody we want to work with for the next four years? Is this somebody who can run a, a team, a multidisciplinary meeting, or can be taught how to run an interdisciplinary meeting? So leadership experience is valued team experience is valued. Having some sort of exposure to PM&R, knowing what we do, and having just an idea of what's interesting to you. If that's just the musculoskeletal orthopedic care, great. Go do an ortho rotation if you can't get a PM&R rotation before you come. If you think it's the neuro part, if you think stroke is fascinating, but you want to know what happens after that person has been diagnosed, treated with TPA, and put on all of their um, secondary prevention meds. If you want to find out what happens to them afterwards and help take care of them from that standpoint, 
Pimenar is a great place for you to be doing neuro rotation. Um, you can spend some time with a physical therapist or an occupational therapist uh, there. You can spend some time with a speech language pathologist. Learning how to interpret a swallow study is huge for a lot of our patients. We do trach management in our uh, spinal cord patients. Uh, I wanted to do OB at one point in my life. And then I've had a ton of people, like, I guess it's not a ton, but it feels like a ton of patients that have come with pelvic pain. So I'm able to look at that from the PM&R perspective and the OB perspective. Um, and then working with my OB colleagues on complex patients. I've had um, I've had some patients with or major trauma that had recovered and then are pregnant and are like, how do I manage this? Like my center gravity is changing and how do I manage my equipment and what do I need to change? Uh, so those kinds of things, you know, my pain is changing and I can't take my pain meds anymore because I'm having a baby. And it's contraindicated. What do we do? Uh, so those kinds of things are what I think if you have that mindset as a medical student and you go into that rotation knowing like this is what's interests me, then I think you're you're probably set because you by the time you get to the rotation portion, you've kind of already done everything you need to do. <laughs> um, so I think does that answer your question about how what students should do and have for rotations? Yeah, I, I think it, it's really all focused in, right? Like, I, I feel like it, the, the listener that's listening to this deciding they want to do Army PNR, uh, PMNR, they're like, you're thinking from the mindset of every medical student, right? How do I stack my resume as much as possible? And I think you kind of answered that. I think that secondary to that, if we're almost backtracking a little bit, is... Um, what do you see a particular type of personality that pursues PMNR? And is there any difference in personality in Army PMNR? And are the what kind of cultural differences do you see? So, like talking culture in general and who is in PMNR? Man, uh, it's ever expanding, which is great. Uh, as a as a woman in PMNR, when I was applying, there didn't feel like there were a lot of us. And now I've been seeing a lot more applicants uh, and maybe that's because there are more just females in general going into medical school, but I think it was pretty male dominated in army PM&R for a long time. And I was lucky enough to have several female senior residents. There was one per class ahead of me. And now we like my class was actually three females and two males. And so, and after that, we've, have one like every year so it so you have a gender mix to begin with so I think that and with anything I think that changes um the dynamic because we've had people have you know it's different when it's the the father of the child who has a baby and needs paternity leave versus you have the, the mother of the child in residency wanting to have um having the baby and getting maternity leave and our our program was great with those um residents who did have babies in residency. So I think that was one of the great cultural things about it. Um, and then as far as personalities, it ranges. <laughs> we get people, like, if you think about the stereotypes of folks that like neuro, for example, we get, we get that people that want, like to nerd out about peripheral nerves and areas of the brain. We have people that love to nerd out about sports. Uh, there's a lot of sports analogies in every single didactic session. Uh, people generally, lots of rivalries because we come from all over the country. Uh, we had people that 
hate sports and really like just doing the management part and just uh, helping people navigate a health system based on what their injury is. Uh, we have people that are only into procedures. Uh, they All they want to do all day is do spinal intervention procedures and go to pain management, um, fellowship, uh, prefer to prefer to spend their day on with a C-arm. So, you know, those, there are those folks. And then you have people who are really into um, engineering and uh, prosthetics and how does that translate into somebody learning how to run again? How does gait analysis affect? I mean, it, damn it. It, it's, it's, there's some place for everybody in human art. And I think that's because it has so, such, so much overlap with other specialties. And you just really, you can find a niche just by being a generalist or you can choose to subspecialize. Okay. So kind of leaning off of that a little bit, I think, not really, actually, I'm just changing gears. Um, uh, some of the things that I think most people join the military, or I like to think that a lot of people join the military, because a part of it is having the unique experience of that practice, right? So what, what things are unique in being PMNR in the Army? Maybe if you can comment on what it looks like to be in an operational role for a PMNR doctor and, you know, where will we see them? What role would that be in? And, you know, versus role one versus role three and four and stuff like that. And, you know, what, what's kind of the broader strategic mission for you guys? So that's two, a twofold question. Okay. <laughs> so what we've historically been utilized as is we drop back to being battalion surgeon at role one, role two. Um, so we are, we basically go back to being a generalist, which is why we do the transitional year. Mm-hmm. And um, we have, that's what people have done for a long, long, long time. Uh, in the last couple of years, there's been a push um, to show that we are, good at the polytrauma assessments um, and what we're hoping to do kind of as a specialty is to, I don't want, I don't want to speak too much for it because I am not the consultant. So I can't say a hundred percent. So this is caveated, but this is my understanding of what we are trying to do is be the, be the point specialty for traumatic brain injury in theater be the point for these multiple traumas and helping to assess, does this person need, you know, if somebody's got a musculoskeletal injury in the gym while they're deployed, do they need to be sent back stateside or can this be managed here? Mm-hmm. Um, and and how long do we think they're gonna be out? Do they, you know, and, and this has also been in conjunction with, uh, there's been a movement where physical therapists are starting to be embedded at the battalion level Mm-hmm. which it was not happening before. And so people did need to like come back stateside for physical therapy for something uh, in order to get back in the fight when maybe that wasn't necessary and they could still do most of their deployed job and, and do that physical therapy. So that's a, that's a changing target right now, but that's what we're right now focusing on. And especially here at BAMC and at Walter Reed is doing those polytrauma assessments and being part of the planning for what do we do with these patients after they've been in, um, after they've been injured in theater, like where, where do they need to go and helping with dispo and discharge, that kind of thing. So 
hopefully that will be a changing role, but for now we are still deployed as a generalist, basically at a battalion surgeon level, kind of like a, you, you get your, your pre-deployment training and that's where you go. And I, I only speak from, that's all hearsay because I haven't actually done a deployment yet, mm-hmm. but that's what the people that I have worked with have done. Okay. So out of curiosity, so it sounds like with it, the changing dynamic, hopefully the changing dynamic where you, they kind of utilize your specialty skills more specifically rather than used as a generalist, it sounds like, so if we had a polytrauma patient that came in, that polytrauma patient would go through all the resuscitation once they're stabilized and they're in their holding pattern at say a roll three or something like that. And mm-hmm. now we need to figure out where they're going to go or what we need to do. Then that would be the point in which you would be stepping in and kind of doing that assessment to see where they're at, what the expectations would be on their recovery and do they need to be pushed back or is this something that can be managed uh, in country and it would only be a couple of weeks or something. Am I understanding that right? Yep. Basically. Yeah. And, and that is, um, that's what we're hoping. And especially it's really more polytrauma is hard because that's generally involved, like, you know, a long bone fracture or mm-hmm. something that is going to take several weeks, whether it was fixed, fixated, casted, or, um, in attractions, but like, it's going to take a long time. That person's probably not going to immediately return to duty, but for managing our mild and moderate, um, traumatic brain injuries in the theater, a lot of those folks get kind of pulled out of the fight without having appropriate rehab or get put into the fight without being allowed enough time to actually heal. And then we end up cut the army and and the military kind of ends up paying for it on the backside Mm -hmm. when they get home. And so hopefully, hopefully, hopefully uh, in the future, we'll be able to be more helpful and proactive in identifying those cases that, you know, need a shorter time or getting those folks out that are like, this is that look like they have more severe deficits and, and really probably should leave sooner and really have that definitive expertise to, to make that triage decision point earlier rather than leaving it to uh, folks that maybe aren't as skilled in seeing it. Um, and so, or just don't have as much experience with it because they are working on all the other important things that we have to deal with in, in theaters. Um, that's one of the things that is kind of in the works, but it's not nothing official at this time. Okay. Um, we are bumping up against our time. I've asked the majority of the questions that I'm really interested in. So I'm going to open the floor up to anything that you want to specifically talk about. And then I figured you would probably want to go ahead since you're on the committee anyways, maybe make a plug for our upcoming conference that's going to be here in San Antonio maybe even just make a plug uh, for San Antonio in general, because I certainly can, but um, I, I'm the host of the podcast. But um, <laughs> let, let's start first. Anything that we didn't cover that you want our listeners to know about PMR, PMNR, the Army, or just being a physician or officer? I think that the most valuable thing that I have heard and read about being in the military is grow where you are planted. You are not going to feel like you have all the tools you need, but you have the resources that you can find in order to make something that is a satisfying practice and make something that is you're helping patients and you are finding ways to make things better in your specialty. And so, and in, 
especially for the medical students, if you don't, for example, if you are applying to PM&R and you are the fourth person for three spots, apply again, just apply again, stay in contact with the program director, with the chief residents, with the people that you were rotating with, you know, if you really want to do PM&R, there are other chances to do it. And uh, we, we do want people that are passionate about it and we do want people that are interested in it. So uh, that would be my message is take whatever leadership opportunities. If you have to do some GMO time, that's super helpful because you are already doing all these MEB medical board determinations. You are going to be seeing people with musculoskeletal injury. You're going to see where um, PM&R is important in general army medicine. So I think all those experiences are valuable and valued um, in an application as well. So don't be discouraged if you don't get it on the first go around um, mm -hmm. because it is, it's just that it's a space available issue. And maybe somebody had a board score that was like two points above and otherwise you guys were neck and neck. Um, and so that, and unfortunately, sometimes that's just how we have to discriminate between folks. Uh, so I just want people to not be discouraged and know that we want people that are interested and passionate about the specialty because that's how we get better and that's how we stay relevant to the military and that's how we help these patients that have had catastrophic injuries. So um, I think that's my biggest thing. And then I, uh, for a plug for San Antonio, I think that this year it's going to be very exciting. We're trying to encompass a wide range of opportunities within the military. So we are trying to highlight pre-deployment medicine, stateside medicine, helping out how do we do primary care in the military across all branches? How do we adapt to prolonged field care? What are the special missions of the military? And what are some of the, the fun things you can do, like going on to the USS Comfort or what are, mm -hmm. or serving in austere and remote locations and seeing what all those advances are. So we're trying to highlight all of that um, interesting niches within military medicine across the spectrum of care. So we're, we are finalizing our speakers, so I can't say anything about who we've got just yet, but there are going to be some really, really exciting folks coming in to speak. We are planning on being in person. Um, if we absolutely must, we will pivot to virtual, but please plan on coming in person for now. We're best case scenario mindset right now. And uh, we will be on the Riverwalk March 3 to 6 in 2022, and registration will be open um, in approximately three weeks. So. All right. So I'll actually kind of pivot there a little more. I keep saying that. I, I hate when I become redundant in my own interviews. Um, so next to that, medical students looking to be involved, maybe doing presentations, whether that's posters, things like that. Um, but what what's the process look like? It, are are we accepting applications for presentations and things like that? What, what things can uh, the SAMOP students do right now to be involved in the uh, conference? Uh, yeah, great question. So the first question you asked about the research symposium. So research symposium is going to be uh, extended hours. So for those of you who um, did it last year, we only had about an hour. We've, we've extended it. We're gonna try to budget two full hours for the research symposium to allow people to actually see people's research, talk about it and get to talk to our different attendings who are there. And um, 
the application for that is out. Uh, it's been posted on the CMOPS page. It has been posted on the CMOPS um, Instagram. And then it's also on the main AMOPS page. It's kind of buried under the, I think of the RAMOPS page and research. So you have to do a couple clicks across. So I would recommend the social media outlets to get directly to the Google form. Okay. And so we, and so that, that it's a pretty straightforward form. Uh, we accept everything from case reports to randomized controlled trials. Uh, just make sure your, your abstract has to be 300 words or less and make sure you include um, any authors and that you have made sure that any, all of your institutional rules have been followed for confidentiality and, and HIPAA. So that's really the biggest thing. It's where our goal is to get as many people to be able to present as possible. So that's that's for the posters. And then we will we will be doing the um, presentations again. So that is based on your the podium presentations. Um, that will be based on your submission to the research symposium, and you will indicate whether or not you want to be considered for a podium presentation when you put in that application. So uh, that's that's all in the Google form. And your points of contact for that are Larissa Lieutenant Larissa Brandenburg, excuse me, and Lieutenant Stephanie. Ianta, um, and they're part of the RAMOPS committee. And um, then as far as getting involved in the conference, we are doing a call for speakers. So if you have a topic that you want to speak on um, and you think that you might be able to do, or if you have somebody who you think is interested in it um, or have a session proposal, please submit that. Um, the unfortunately for CME, you must be an attending physician in order to do a full speaker 45 minute presentation for our, um, excuse me, for our uh, actual conference content. But if you have a session idea or a session question, then you can reach out to your team office leadership for that, or you can submit just a, a session proposal. Um, if you have an idea for us for that, because we are still, we have, we're starting to set things in stone, but they are, there's still some flexibility in, in what we are able to offer. So if people have ideas, we open, we're open to those and we have the whole committee to review those. So um, okay. I think that's probably the best way for folks to get involved. But if you are a resident with a license, with a medical license to practice, and you have a topic you would like to present for CME, please submit it. If you did some research and want to talk about it, if you are involved in some sort of special training or um, or if you did something with a COVID mission that you think would be valuable to members, uh, please, please, please submit that. If you did a quality or, or um, process improvement project, please submit that because those are important things that are becoming more and more valuable to the Defense Health Agency as well. So um, we want to hear about what the cool things you have done and, and try to integrate that in there as well. Okay. Any important deadlines of, for instance, when to, when those abstracts need to be submitted or when we need to have speakers finalized? Um, we are closing the, these call for abstracts for uh, the CME presentations for the conference that closes on November 1st. Uh, and okay. then, and so it's up, it should be up on the website today. If it's not up today, it'll be up by the close of business today. And then uh, the, I don't want to speak on the research. I believe 
they're accepting submissions until January. Okay. For the research posters. Um, you will have to double check though. We might want to, um, let me pull that up actually. You can scrub, you can edit this, right? <laughs> yeah. What we can do, you don't have to worry about it right now. We'll, we'll talk okay. afterward and I can just put it in the show notes. Um, okay. Yeah. I think it, show notes would be good. Yeah. Even yeah, so, I, we I don't can know do a 15, yeah, we I can do a 15 minute episode later anyways, and just do it all about the, the conference and be able to get more information. So that's an opportunity we might consider as well. That would be awesome. We should do, totally do that. Okay. Um, other than that, I think that's covered all our questions. We have definitely hit the max on our time for this. So it's been amazing. You've shared a lot of information with us. I, I think this definitely puts PM&R in a better light. And I think um, uh, will definitely serve well for those interested in the specialty. So thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me. And um, folks can certainly reach out to me. Uh, I'm pretty active on the CMOPS and um, AMOPS pages. So if people have other questions, uh, feel free to reach out and I can try to get you, get you the answer or find somebody else who knows better than I do. So thank you Great. again for having me. This has been fun. Yeah, it's been awesome. All right. That wraps up our episode with Dr. Lostgarden today. Thank you so much for your time and sharing your experiences with us future military physicians. For those of you listening, if you have any recommendations for the podcast or anything you'd like to hear in particular, feel free to email samopseducationchair at gmail.com. Thanks for tuning in.